Hello, everybody. We'll be reading for us uh, today's text, which is Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. Uh, I'll read it for us, and I'll pray, and then we'll get started. Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is God's word. Uh, let's bow our heads one more time uh, before we go any further. Lord, God, this is your word. We trust you that you're speaking uh, through this word that we're about to hear. God, please be with me as I deliver your word. Um, may you keep my heart humble and uh, be clear in my uh, communication of your word. And may you uh, send your Holy Spirit to each one of our hearts listening to this message for every one of us have, uh, for us to have the open hearts and uh, the power uh, through the Holy Spirit to understand and bear fruit through your word, God. But thank you for what you're doing in our church through this time to build us up. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as usual, three points uh, to help us follow along. Let me share with us what they are, uh, the context of grace, and the second is the action of grace, and the third is the explanation of of grace. The title of this message is The Riches of God's Grace. So follow with me. First point, the context of grace. Verse 1, it says, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins. As you can tell from the past tense, you were, and the words trespasses and sins, uh, like how they indicate, uh, Paul is describing the spiritual, you know, deadness before the believers were saved. And in the next two verses, Paul will explain further what being dead spiritually means. So verse 2, he says, In which, in those sins, you once walked, uh, following the course of this world, and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So being spiritually dead means is this that you follow the course of the world, meaning the trends and you know, what's fashionable, the world order that is opposed to God, 
It also means following the prince of the power of the air, which, of course, means you follow Satan, who is the ruler uh, over the spiritual realm, which is the air. That's what uh, it's, it means. And he's, in fact, at work even right now as we speak in the hearts and the lives of the unbelievers, uh, try to influence them to disbelieve and disobey God. That's what it means. In other words, you are spiritually dead in that you're you are just living according to the ways and values of this world uh, that is essentially promoted by Satan against God. The examples of this satanic uh, world order might be one materialism, you know, which is valuing money over you know, everyone, everyone and ev everything else. Or it could be hedonism, which is valuing your own pleasure uh, over you know, everyone and everything else. And that is very prevalent in our you know, world today. And that is the satanic, so to speak, uh, you know, world order. And under this system, you, know, you are, the problem with this system is that you are the center of this world. And, and you are being selfish you know, while uh, God uh, is just a means to an end. And you know, he's even an enemy to your kingdom. And that's what the problem is. And verse 3, uh, there's deeper aspect here. It says, among whom? Among the sons of disobedience. Um, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So lastly, you know, being spiritual, that means that you live by the passions of your flesh, which is basically your sinful and selfish anti-God nature in you. And not only you, you, you have those desires and passions in you, inside of you, but also you carry them out, uh, meaning that you live out these desires in your daily lives. And the result is that you know, we are bound to, it says, God's righteous wrath and judgment. It's because we are created to live for God as our king, uh, but our sinful lives are you know, characterized by me, myself, and I. That's the, the, it's the essence of sin. So we're living in rebellion and violation towards God and his law, and the God of justice, if God is God of justice, he has to and he will not uh, leave us unpunished. So in these three verses, Paul is describing the condition of humanity that is utterly hopeless and helpless. I hope you feel the weight of that. You know, externally, we are swamped in this stream of, you know, sinful culture, you know, influenced by Satan. And internally, you know, our heart is sick, you know, craving sinful desires that are opposed to God. Outside and inside, we are both dead. And that's what it means. That, and also, being dead means that just, just, just as physically dead, uh, are you know, unresponsive and cannot communicate with other people, uh, the spiritually dead also cannot and will not respond to God's call. There's no communication. There's no response. And that's what being spiritually dead means. Uh, and let me you know, share this illustration you know, carefully because I, I do want to be sensitive here. But there is, you know, war going on, as we know, in, in Ukraine right now, and we must keep praying for the lives, um, you know, that are being lost there and the situation there. Um, but when I looked at the cause of this war, namely 
the Vladimir Putin, um, you know, he started this war, uh, you know, by following his own ego and, you know, selfish desires and ambitions, right? And it's costing many innocent lives right now and making people suffer even in its own country because of the sanctions and everything else. And the many nations, if not all the nations in the world, are urging him to stop. You know, what are you doing? And they're even threatening him and, you know, the country of Russia with many sanctions and penalties. But he's not listening. He's not responding. He's so fixated on his own, you know, selfish agenda so that he's not, you know, responsive to the pleas for peace. And that's what's happening. That, that, that's the cause and the result of this war. And now in our passage, Paul is saying that, you know, all humanity is like that with God. You see, you know, they are fighting a war with God, just like Putin with the rest of the world. You know, they're fighting the war where, you know, they're fighting for their own selfish rule and passions of their flesh. And as a result, you know, they often hurt others and hurt themselves. You know, ultimately they're, you know, alienated from God. And God often calls them, God calls hum humans and the whole humanity throughout history to come back and repent and restore the relationship, but they are not responding. They are unresponsive because they are dead spiritually. That's what it means. So as we hear this, can I encourage us to examine our own heart, not the people outside, people out there, uh, or just the humanity in general, but let's personalize this together. You know, can we examine our own hearts? As far as I know, you know, most of us in this room and joining uh, those who are joining us uh, through the live stream, you know, we're, we're not criminals, and most of us are law-abiding citizens. I know that. But then the problem is, I think that may, that status, good status in the society may deceive us by making us think that we are good people with no need to repent. Um, but what if we try, what if we try to be perfect for the next hour, you know, morally and whatever? Or if that's too hard, maybe uh, let's make it the whole 24 hour, next 24 hour. Let's try to be perfect, okay? If you try that, uh, try to be perfect in your minds and behaviors, I would argue that before long, we'll find that there's plethora of impure and sinful desires discovered in us. It could be pride. It could be jealousy. It could be sinful anger, lust. Again, materialism, hedonism. You know, we may lie. Even white lies, that's a lie too, isn't it? And we may gossip, we may judge others. Uh, John Calvin said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Uh, you know, meaning our hearts churn out sin after sin after sin. And with these sins and more, we often hurt others and hurt ourselves and you know, draw ourselves away from God. And even after God shows us these sins, you know, often we are stubborn and get stuck in these sins and idols. And I believe that's why Jeremiah 79 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's the reality. 
I know this is not a good news right now. I know that at this point. But left to ourselves, you know, we are hopeless. Our hearts are dead and hope, you know, helpless. And that's the context of grace. But for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. And that's the first point. But now, second point, action of grace. In the face of the hopeless situation, God has acted. Verse 4, he says, but God, powerful words there, but God in this hopelessness, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It says God is rich in mercy. The word mercy in the New Testament means rather emotional compassion and pity towards helpless people. A good example of this word is the story of the Good Samaritan, if you are familiar with that, you know, where uh, the Samaritan showed great compassion towards uh, this person who was robbed and beat up and was pretty much dead on the street. And God is rich in such mercy. That's his character. But that merciful character ultimately stems from God's core nature, which is his love. You know, here the Greek word for love is agape. You might, you know, uh, be familiar with that, which is uh, not just any kind of love. It talks about selfless, unmerited love, you know, wanting the highest good for the one you are trying to love. Selfless love, that's a better way to put it. So God's great love and his mercy is what's happening here. And then we got to see, we're about to see uh, that driving God to do unthinkable. So verse 5, it says, Even when we were dead, again, in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Here, Paul is basically saying this verse. No, God is not supposed to save us. You know, we were dead in our sins, being actively rebellious and in hostility towards him. He shouldn't save us. But because God is infinitely loving and so merciful and so compassionate and is so gracious, he gives us what we do not deserve. His salvation through his son Jesus Christ is what he gives us as a gift. And, and now, in verse 6, he goes further with that. Verse 6, he says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you want to see the depth of his love? Here it is. Here, uh, one doctrine that I want you to see and get is this. It's called the, the union with Christ. In verse 5, uh, it said, God made us alive together with Christ. And verse 6, it says, God raised us up with Christ. So if everything is with Christ, meaning that you know, Jesus Christ physically died on the cross for our sins and he was resurrected. He, he was raised from the dead in resurrection. The union with Christ means that when one puts his or her faith in Christ, their identity and destiny are now bound up with Christ. So just as Jesus physically died, believer has spiritually died 
to their old sinful life, the old dead life. And just as, on the other hand, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, the believer now is bound up with that, meaning that they're now spiritually alive. You know, now there's a desire to live for God, an ability to. And in the end, not only spiritual, but in the end, they will be resurrected physically like Jesus. Now, Jesus and the believer have common destiny. That's what union with Christ means. It's as if once you become a Christian, once you become a believer, Christ is grabbing hold of your hand all the way to the end, and he will never let you go. That's what, again, union with Christ means. And then he says, so with that in mind, now there's height of God's grace. It says, God even seated us with Christ, again, union with Christ, in the heavenly places. You got to go to uh, chapter 1, verse 20. We looked at that two weeks ago. Just as a quick reminder, Paul said that he, you know, God worked in Christ uh, when he raised him from the dead, again, resurrection, and he seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. The same words, the heavenly places, and here, Back in our, our text, today's text, it talks about how God raised us up with Christ in the heavenly places. So what Paul is saying is that just as God seated Jesus in the heavenly places, we are bound up with him. We are there with him, well, spiritually, obviously, not physically yet. Uh, but the difference there, of course, is Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, meaning he's the king of the universe. That's the seat of authority. We're not there but we are sitting around his throne, sharing, incredibly sharing his authority to rule the world eventually. But now, most importantly, we share Christ's power. And repeat, we have Christ's power right now because we are bound up with Jesus. So that, and if you go back to chapter 1 that we just read, it talked about how uh, you know, God used the power uh, that, uh, to resurrect Jesus, and the same power is now in every believer. And that's the power that we have as believers in order to overcome sin and live a life pleasing to God. And just, just look at that. That's the reality of believers. Because their destiny is now with Christ, they have not only the resurrection, spiritual resurrection, new life, but also sitting with Christ in heaven, having the same power to live a victorious life. And that's why in verse 7, uh, look with me there, it says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Meaning he did all of this to display to the whole world and the whole universe that his grace is great. And in response, you know, we will spend all eternity marveling at God's grace towards us that has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God has lavished his grace upon us when he saved us from the hopeless situation that we were in. We were dead. The next slide. 
I don't know if you are familiar with the, the missionary couple there. Um, the guy's name is Jim Elliott, and, and his family, um, you know, along with you know, other missionaries, were the missionaries to Ecuador, and particularly to a tr- tribe named uh, uh, Huarani. And in 1956, Elliot and his friends were you know, trying to you know, make contacts with uh, the, the tribe um, you know, through multiple occasions so that they can you know, build relationships and finally get to share the gospel with them. But uh, unfortunately, in one of the occasions, if you know the story, Elliot, Jim Elliot, and four other missionaries were met with the warriors of the tribe, and they killed all five missionaries. And now, uh, as you see in the picture, uh, that's uh, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, and uh, they had a toddler daughter. And uh, and w- what they did, what the, the the wife and the daughter did, you know, after Jim Elliot died, uh, is astonishing. Here's what they did. The two of them and another lady uh, decided to go back to the tribe to serve the very people, literally the very people that killed, uh, you know, their father and their husband. Uh, and of course, you know, they were not being reckless. I know uh, they ensured that the, the safety would be there for their daughter especially. Uh, but nonetheless, when they secured the safety, they went. And they spent several years, um, you know, making their home in the, in the midst of the tribe. Uh, and then they learned their language and they, they translated the, the Bible for them. And as a result, uh, many in the tribe in the end accepted Jesus as their Lord. And now, it's a good story, right? But now, uh, could you uh, perhaps empathize with uh, you know, Elizabeth Elliot? Can we imagine how she would have felt at first, right? Like, you know, she just lost love of her life, right? Jim Elliot. And, and not only that, it was very unjust death. The, the, the tribesmen who murder Jim Elliot, those are the very ones that Jim Elliot was there to serve. You know, he was giving his life for them, but they killed him instead. So there would have been, at least at first, you know, a lot of deep grief, as well as perhaps resentment and anger towards them and even towards God. But what do you think, in that state of emotion, what do you think motivated Elizabeth Elliot to go back to the tribe and minister to them? Why? I would argue the motivation was the agape love. You know, the, the, the tribesmen surely didn't deserve it, right? Didn't deserve any favor. They rather deserved punishment and perhaps even revenge. And their conscience was dead. Their conscience was smeared. But Elizabeth Elliot wanted the highest good for them, agape love, namely uh, what's best for them, the gospel and the reconciliation with God. And so she lived among them, and she united herself with them and brought them to God. And that's exactly what God did. That's exactly what Christ did. Even though the humanity was dead in their sins and eventually, you know, he, he knew that they would kill Jesus, right? And yet, Jesus still came. And he lived among them. And, and, and through his death on the cross and also through their, his union with them, he was bringing 
them to God. And he did that because of the same agape love. He was rich in mercy, abounding in his grace for the sinners. That is the magnitude of God's love for us. Again, let's personalize it. Just like we personalize sin and deadness, that's how much God loves you. No matter how far you feel from him right now, no matter what sin that you are addicted to, God has great mercy for you. He can lavish you with his grace upon your belief and even bring you up to sit with Christ, having the power of heaven at your disposal. God loves you. He's searching for you even now. The action of grace. And lastly, uh, the explanation of grace. Paul has a little more to say about this grace. So he now closed this passage by unpacking uh, you know, for us further what this grace is. So verse 8, look with me. It says, For by grace you have been saved uh, through faith. So he says, we are saved from God's wrath uh, on the basis of God's grace, and that is through faith. What that means is that God does graciously offer this salvation to everyone, all the sinners, but sinners must actively receive it through faith. Faith is trusting, trusting in God's accomplishment for us in Christ as opposed to to trying to achieve this salvation through our own efforts. That's why, you know, Paul says in the uh, rest of verse 8 and verse 9, it says, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is God's gift for us to receive. And that's what, again, faith means. It's not a wage we can work for. And, and guess what? Even if we try to achieve our salvation, it's not possible because, first, like Paul said earlier, you know, we were spiritually dead. You know, there's no ability in us that can respond to God and um, you know, revive ourselves. Second, you know, some try their best to um, achieve salvation through some religious efforts, but that will fall short because the gap between you know, God's holiness and our sin is great. It has to be the sinless Son of God dying on our behalf as an atoning sacrifice. And when we receive that, receive that gift by faith, His perfect righteousness covers us. And again, that's justification. We have perfect righteousness of Jesus. And all that they have to do is to receive it. You cannot earn it. You receive it. And the result it will be that our boast and our, our praise, everything will go to God as opposed to uh, you know, ourselves or anything else because God achieved it and we received it. And verse 10, we end with this. It, it says, the word workmanship uh, there, uh, let me read it first, verse 10. Uh, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for his 
good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word work, workmanship there uh, means a crafted work of God, or, or rather work of art. So you could say a masterpiece. And then he adds that, that we were created in Christ Jesus. What that means is that it was God that created us in Christ. He recreated us. It's not our work. We cannot do that. It was his work that created us again in, in Christ's image. And then uh, verse 10, uh, he said that not only that, from there on, uh, you know, it's not like God just throws good works at us and, hey, good luck. Uh, I've saved you, so just live for me now. Good luck with that. That's not what he's saying here. Uh, what, what the verse is saying is that, uh, and especially the word, uh, we should walk in them. That's an interesting word, isn't it? He could have said, um, you know, he gave us good works so that we can work at it, or he could have said we can, you know, do it. But by saying that we should walk in them, what that means is the rest of our lives until Jesus comes back, you know, God is working in us through the power again that we have in the heavenly places uh, so that we can accomplish these good works by his grace, not by our own strength, but by his grace alone. So again, what that means is God's grace is not just the beginning, but it's the end too. All the way through our lives, we are saved by God's grace, beginning to the end. And now that has a huge implication for our lives. Let me end with this. I stumbled upon a, a TED Talk a video uh, on the topic of eugenics. Uh, bear with me. Like, wait, eugenics? Uh, it's, you know, I blame the algorithm, but it, it showed up. So I was like, oh, I watched it. If you're familiar with that, uh, eugenics is a practice uh, that attempts to you know, keep people from getting pregnant if uh, they are deemed to be you know, mentally or physically uh, unfit or deficient. So that, you know, so basically the practice is trying to prevent, uh, you know, like deformed or deficient children to be born. That's, that's the practice. And some people go as far as, you know, even murdering, you know, babies and adults uh, who uh, are deemed to be deficient, you know, notably from, uh, uh, you know, during the time of Holocaust. That's what happened. And the video also talked about how this practice was actually pretty popular in America. Uh, up, all the way until 1970s. It's not too long ago. And, uh, and it also talks about how many of these practices were you know, motivated by you know, racism and other prejudices. But anyways, the basic idea of eugenics you know, is the, the principle of survival of the fittest, right? You know, whoever performs well will survive. And if you are not good enough, you know, you have no chance. But think about it. That idea, that principle, whether it's eugenics or, um, you know, survival of the fittest, that is how the world works without grace. Let me give some examples here. You know, those who do well in school are honored, right? You know, those who are physically fit get the spotlight in this world. Those who are talented are selected for a variety of things. 
And those who perform well at work are rewarded with a promotion. And in groups, you know, those who are more eloquent and you know, more fast thinking, uh, you know, they normally thrive and get the respect. And on Instagram, the prettiest pictures or videos get the most hearts and likes. And lastly, uh, perhaps especially in the area of religion, even in churches, those who are disciplined and those who seem to have things together, put together well, are respected. That's how the world works. And here, I'm not denouncing competition. I think it's a good thing. We need to compete and you know, excel in what we do, whatever we do. However, in this world where survival of the fittest is the default, you know, your performance then becomes the measure of how valuable, valuable you are as a human being. And the extreme case is the eugenics. That's, that's how the world works. That's, dare I say, satanic world order that we just we looked at earlier. In that world, God's grace hits that order in the head. God operates not by, listen, by how capable or uncapable you are. That's not how grace works. Rather, God operates by his own gracious and free will. And you get the, the acceptance of God, not by your own accomplishments, but simply by receiving what Christ has done and what Christ is doing right now in your life until he comes back. That is the gospel. That's the lifeline of Christians. And let me give you two things of what will happen if you live by this principle of grace. Two things. One, you will become a content person. You will become a content person. If you really believe that you receive salvation simply by believing, then and you believe by your faith that you've been united with Christ and you have been raised to new life and you are now sitting with Christ in heaven, having all the power of the world against your sin. If you believe that, that means you are secure. Nothing can move you. Nothing can take Christ's hand away from you. He will take it to the end. He will never let you go. So that during the time of success, if you perform well, then you can humbly rejoice in God's work in your life. And during the time of failures, you can still rejoice. Why? Because you know God is working in you still to grow your character. He didn't abandon you. That's not why failure happens. He's sovereign over that. Because of the security of God's love and uh, you know, will over you, you can be content in all circumstances. That's a secret, Paul says in Philippians. You can be content. And second, if you really believe this in your life, you can also be gracious and generous person to other people. Meaning when, you, when other people succeed, you can genuinely celebrate God's work in their lives. And if they fail, you can see the potential, not, not the result, 
that you see right away, but you see the potential of what God might be doing in their lives. So you can rejoice for them. You become gracious. You don't come to jump to judgment right away. And, and guess what? From my experience and in ministry, I realized that those who are judgmental and harsh towards themselves tend to be the ones who are judgmental and harsh towards others. Meaning, you haven't really figured out grace to your, for yourself so that you don't have grace for other people. God's grace, the life, lifestyle of God's grace changes everything. So may we receive God's grace and love that is it's an abundant, excessive, rich. May we receive that and may that be our security so that the way our, our, we relate to ourselves will change and also this community, how we relate to other people will be that of grace and love. Let's pray together. I just want to encourage us to be still before God right now. Uh, I mean, there's so much more to, to be said actually about this passage. Um, but the core thing is that God is gracious. He overcomes all the human obstacles and impossibilities. He'll pursue after you all the way to the end. If you just receive him by faith. And that's how we overcome the world. If we do not think, if we do not care, we will just go along with the world where we'll be depressed, right? Because we'll be always judged by how well we do things. There's no peace, right? We always have to chase after things. I mean, many of us are in our 20s and 30s. Guys, we have uh, perhaps 40 or 50 more years to live in, on earth. Do we really want to just keep chasing after things? We really want to end our lives that way. Or do we want to experience more of God's grace and His joy and His rest? And just receive His love for us. That He would heal our striving, restless hearts. Let's meditate on that together uh, before we uh, close with the song. Uh, but, but let's ask God to drill this truth into our hearts so it becomes our security in our lives. I think in Christian life, uh, the, the condition of our heart is uh, definitely crucial. Sometimes when we hear the gospel, uh, we overjoy and are just deeply moved by it. Sometimes, you know, it may sound like something that we've heard many, many times. Uh, or for some of us, you know, this might be the first time you're hearing this message. Uh, 
think what's important, I think the reason why Paul started this message, this text is uh, highlighting the, the desperation and the hopelessness of the situation. Um, just as we talked about last week, um, that's where we you know, examine our hearts and really get to see that left to ourselves, you know, we are helpless. The sin is so great that it is my sin that held Jesus on the cross. It's not just innocuous, just white lines. But my, my Lord and Savior died on the cross for me. Those are my nails that he bore. I just want to encourage us to as we close, let's pray uh, that God would search our hearts, that He would, uh, for some of us, bring us back to the first love, where you realize, man, that's all I need the gospel. And again, for those of us who uh, listen to this message for the first time, I pray that uh, you'll search our heart, heart as well, and um, by His will, that you will receive this message faith that he will give you. Let's pray uh, before we finish with the Lord's Prayer. Gracious Father, um, we marvel at the extent and the magnitude of your grace. Your word said, you have loved us with great love. That your mercy is rich. That you have emotional compassion towards us. That you long for us. That you went as far as sending your son Jesus to us, that he would die in our place. Oh Lord, we need your spirit uh, to uh, remind ourselves of this message over and over and over so that we will not grow proud, so that we will not uh, start relying on the means of the world to find our security and peace. So bring us back to you, uh, to your love, the love is, the love that is unconditional. We don't have to earn it, we just receive it. God, we receive your love. Fill our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for finding us and pursuing after us, loving us as we are. Thank you, Lord. May we enjoy this grace that we have in you.